Hey y'all, this is Justin Mitchell from the Sun-Herald in Biloxi, Mississippi, and this is Out Here in America. Today, we're looking at community, the places we live, the dreams we believe in, and the people who help us learn who we really are. We're doing that with Teddy Mars, the host of New Orleans Carnival King's monthly drag king shows. Yeah, that's right, drag kings. New Orleans means complexity. It's very scary to break into a new clique, to find a community. It's really what people go to drag shows for, like for our shows. Since 2002, the Carnival Kings have been showing New Orleans something new, one Tuesday night performance at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everyone in between, welcome to Mags 940. You are at the Carnival Kings Drag King of And they became, for Teddy, a family very different than the one he grew up with, not far from here. Tonight we are featuring the talents of Scarlett Dior, Bryson Gage, Freddie Idol, Eric Auditorium, Christian Gage. Now, the 39-year-old is paying that forward as one of New Orleans' most visible advocates for LGBT people who haven't felt like they belong. You need community and you need people who are willing to live your experience with you and understand. And unless you are in that community, you cannot understand what it is to be that minority, whatever that marginalized community is, no matter your intention. We caught up with Teddy and his family at their home on the West Bank of the Big Easy to talk about his path to New Orleans, balancing life as a carnival king while being the father to his 11-year-old son, William, and guiding the way for the next generation. Stick around on Out Here in America. I'm gonna turn my phone off. Thank you guys for coming all the way out here. I was willing to go to Mississippi. No, we wouldn't, we'd rather see where you go. <laughs> all right, I think I'm good. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Nina. <laughs> She's so cute. She's like petting gray air. What is it like being a family man, like a transitioning man, and having a family and living here in New Orleans. What is that like for you and your family? It's our own little version of activism. I think sometimes for uh, certain people in the community, just existing is your own brand of activism. It's also hard because I am now the invisible queer until I talk. Because once I talk, I either sound like a small person or a very young man who possibly has a glandular problem. My voice is still kind of in between. So once I start talking, sometimes it's like the straight people that are reading me as queer and questioning who I am. But my partner struggles with that too. You know, she's beautiful and in a very girl next door kind of way and people do not read her as queer. So it's very frustrating, especially when we're walking around with our kiddo because he does look a little bit like me and like our coloring is very similar. Even though he's not biologically mine, people will look at us and say, oh, look at that little family. Not, you know, look at those badass queer people over there and their kid. That's awesome. <laughs> How do you combat that? I purposely do not try to augment the way I talk or the way I walk. I try not to hide who I actually am. I don't feel the need to go stealth. And I respect the hell out of people who make that choice. They will actually take classes. They will you know, go to vocal coaches to learn how to speak in a more masculine manner or a more feminine manner. And if that's what you want to do with your life, that's awesome. But that does not align with what my passion in life is. And I will routinely out myself and try to let people know that I'm queer without making them uncomfortable and like throwing myself at them because then that's giving the wrong impression entirely. In any way I can is how I combat it. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about your drag troupe. The New Orleans Carnival Kings have been a troupe 
since 2002. They were a marriage of two smaller troops that didn't know each other. Unisex Illusions and the Hardly Boys. Unisex Illusions was a band of friends that had just gotten together and they were putting on a drag king show at this little bar, which was Kim's 940. It used to be Charlene's, which is a pretty famous lesbian bar. Well, back in the day it was, before it closed down. And the Hardly Boys were a group of Tulane students who were getting into doing drag. And they heard there was a little drag king show and they kind of ran into each other. To make a short story long, they got offered a show at the Bourbon Pub on a Tuesday at midnight. And one of the drag kings came up with Carnival Kings, which they then regretted later on. They were like, I don't love the name. You know, it feels kind of cliche, but it was already too late. We were talking about who we're going to interview this season, and Amanda was saying, oh, my friend Teddy, you know, he leads this drag king troupe. And I never, I never knew what troop stood for and mm -hmm. what it meant. And so it's been around for... Oh, uh, goodness. Uh, 15 years, and I've been with them for 11 of those 15 years. Yeah. It's not uncommon that most people uh, either have never heard of drag kings or they don't realize that troops are a thing, that you don't have to go and be a, a, what we call a feral king and just go out there booking jobs or just entering the pageant circuit by yourself, that you can find other people that will support you and come together and do an entire show with you takes the pressure off tremendously. How drag queens are like a family and they have sisters. Is that kind of what a troop is or is it more than that? Drag queens are like cats and drag kings are like dogs, to me anyway. And this has been an observation that was not my own from another one of our drag kings, that queens tend to pass on a name. They encourage a certain aesthetic. Troops, we go under one name but we don't give last names to our characters as a group. Everybody is their own character and their own kind of genre. They get complete creative control over what they do, and we do not typically censor their music. We don't tell them what they should and should not do. And I think the biggest difference is that in a troupe, there is no competition. And in houses, there sometimes is. RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, extremely competitive, and that is born from the competitive nature of the pageant circuit for drag queens. Because even in RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, there's always these beauty queens, is what they say, and. They're the ones who traditionally make it really far, and then you kind of have the outliers who have recently been doing better, and like the last season, a very artistic queen who was very non-traditional one, and it was such a big deal. And I guess you never really think about the stereotypes within these mm -hmm. small minority communities. Absolutely, and it's not true of every house. Some of them are extremely anti-competitive and very supportive. They are in the minority, though, from the queens that I've worked with and the houses that I've been introduced to. I do find that some of those stereotypes are true because it makes more money. You know, the, yeah. the more you compete with one another, the better the show is going to be for the audience and the more money you're going to make as a performer. Right. And pushing each other to be better isn't necessarily a bad thing. No. Yeah. No. As a matter of fact, it sometimes hobbles us that we are not as competitive as we could be. But we rely on good communication to make each other better. We don't read them the way that some queens pride themselves on doing. Right. It's just not our style. It just, it really breaks them down in a specific way. And, you know, we are not the army. We're not going to make them be all they can be. Absolutely. They get up there and do their best drag they can. So what attracted you to the troop when you decided to join? Loneliness. <laughs> um, when I turned 18, I moved out to California, to the Bay Area. I'd met somebody online who turned out to be a fantastic person, dated them for a few years. And I didn't really have a community back here in New Orleans. So when I came back 
after 9-11, because lots of things changed, and I was working for a startup company at the time, I realized I knew no one. And I had barely been out for a year prior to moving to California, so I had no idea where to even start. Like, I would do stereotypical things, like I would go to Home Depot and look for other queer women, or somebody who was just visibly queer, and I was pretty convinced that I was one of six lesbians in the metro area, because I'm transgender. Well, I've actually identified as genderqueer, but I've been on hormones, I'm a female-bodied person. At the time, I was very much identifying as a lesbian. So I would do things like go to bookstores and check out the queer clerks at the counters and hope that one of them would see me as another queer person, but we don't stop and strike up a conversation. That feels also very awkward, you know, stop and talk to somebody. It hey, does. Hey, you're gay, I'm gay too. Oh my That's God, awesome. you're so, <laughs> we have so much in common. <laughs> you're gay Jerry, it's, um, you know, yeah. it's, it is, it, it really is. I stumbled on the Carnival Kings by complete accident. I was doing um, some work that what turned out to be a very impromptu queer community center uptown, in uptown New Orleans. And living in the back of this house happened to be the founder of the Hardly Boys, who was now one of the lead Carnival Kings. And I got to talk to her and learned that there was a show every Tuesday at midnight. And I could barely contain my enthusiasm, but you don't want to be that person who's just like, oh, thank God you exist. I started going to every single show that I could. I think I even had pneumonia that first year, and I still went because it was finding community when you feel like you finally found something, you hold on to it. That was in 2005 when I first met them. I met my first New Orleans girlfriend there, like my real first one. And it wasn't until after Katrina that I got involved in being a part of the troupe. After Katrina, they lost so many people just to flight. You know, people in our troupe that had lost everything and all of a sudden, we were just scattered to the wind. So I remember my, my girlfriend and I and my family and her family were in Texas. And we got a phone call from this person that I, had, the, the very first friend that I had originally met, saying that the Bourbon Pub was calling us asking when our show was coming back. And this was a couple of weeks after the hurricane. Nothing was really up and running but Bourbon Street. The scene is nothing short of apocalyptic. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. Katrina's departure was just the beginning of the misery. We picked November because, you know, that was probably the soonest we could get there. And it started out with four to six drag kings, where previously they had had closer to 20. And they would just do number after number and change costumes as quick as they could. Like, I was just helping them out backstage, but before long it was like, okay, we need people. Good evening, you gorgeous creatures, how are we? Excellent. It sounds like about six of y'all are happy to be here, and I can work with that. I did not think I was going to be any good at it, and I wasn't, but I was totally hooked by that point, so I just jumped in. Well, you could have been anywhere tonight, but you chose to be here at MAGS, and for that, we're either going to thank you or apologize. We'll see how the show goes. If we have what was it like right after Katrina, just getting back into the bar? I mean, what did it feel like? Can you describe? Eerie. Um, doing a show at midnight on a Tuesday already doesn't sound like there's going to be a lot of people out and about, but on Bourbon Street, there always was. After Katrina, our first show there, we had a healthy crowd, healthier than I thought we would. But it was eerie walking into a bar where everything is so quiet, because the rest of Bourbon was just so quiet. 
and a lot of things didn't even have their lights on. A lot of the bars still weren't quite open yet. And where the pub is, is across the Lavender Line. The Lavender Line being where Bourbon Street meets St. Anne. And that's where all the gay bars really start. But once you get past there, the lights are not as bright. There's not as much neon. It looks a little foreboding. But you also get a massively awesome view down Bourbon Street of all these people. After Katrina, there was none of that. There were places that had been boarded up that had obviously had some water damage. Garbage service wasn't regularly established. You know, it was just very, very eerie. And I think we were trying very hard not to think about it, about how eerie it was. But I remember how empty that street was. It was so sad. Ugh. But I mean, after Katrina, did things kind of look up? It sounds like if you guys only had four or six kings after Katrina, did that number rise? We had to aggressively recruit <laughs> because it became very clear after about two months that we could not sustain this. So we had to actually start holding auditions. New kings typically come from either out of state, which is unusual, or from our audience because they watch us for a while and they're like, I can do that. Then they get up the gumption to do it. By the way, before we get started, if anybody thinks they can do this, get up here and perform, whether it's drag or live singing or fire juggling, what have you. We have a competition show just for you. Somebody would express interest and we'd say, sure, come next Tuesday, bring your song, bring an outfit. And we would just get there early before the rest of the crowd got there, put them up on stage with like four or five drag kings watching and make them perform. <laughs> and if they were any good, they were in the show that night. Congratulations. We have to vote them in, of course. Like We'd have a meeting later on and vote them in but we'd pay them for that night and say, okay, why don't you come back next Tuesday and we'll talk. It's remarkable. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was so fast. I can't believe that we would just put them on stage that night. That must've been terrifying for them. I couldn't imagine. I got on stage for the first time ever three months ago and I literally had to recite. I was literally on stage for like three hours before just reciting lines. I was so nervous, I can't oh. imagine. But how'd you do? Yeah, it was okay. Is it right? I ramble a lot, so I talk really fast when I get nervous and that's always the thing that trips me up. Same. So the crowds back then when you started, were they large? Very. The crowds only got bigger the further away from the storm we got. We would easily exceed that upstairs capacity at that bar. There was a point where I was really getting concerned about the outside balcony because after the show we'd all like the whole crowd would just go outside and just you know smoke cigarettes and chill out and drink and socialize i'd never seen such a crowd at a anything other than like a concert and the pub is not a small bar no it was pretty healthy sized it always astonished me i wasn't always sure why people came it took me years to figure out why people would show up because surely there were other Drag King shows, surely there were something else to do, but why on a Tuesday at midnight would this be such a thing? Did you figure it out? What did, what did you find? I what think so. I think ultimately, when you are a queer female-bodied person, which was a vast majority of our crowd was queer and female-bodied, they would arrive there with hope. They were hoping to either meet someone romantically, find some kind of family, because I think even in the most loving and supportive family of origin, if your mother and father and your brothers and sisters are all cool with you being queer, I do not for one second think that that meets all of the requirements for a human being. And I think a lot of people came to that show because New Orleans is a very blue bubble in a very red state. 
and there are not a lot of queer female bars around. So if they heard that there were going to be a lot of queer females at this one place, they showed up ready to have a good time and ready to be their best selves. Even if it was on a Tuesday? Even though it was only on a Tuesday at midnight, people would rearrange their college schedules so they didn't have classes on Wednesday morning. If you're working service industry, Tuesday night's kind of a dead night anyway. So they would just finish their shift and come in to the bar and have plenty of time. What do they care? They don't go to work until 4 o'clock the next day. So I'm guessing that today the crowds at the shows are a lot smaller. Oh yeah, definitely. And I don't think it's necessarily because of the show's age. I think it points to the attitude that bar owners have when they see a queer female audience. My experience with bar owners has been that when they see a large crowd, they see dollar signs, which they should, but what they don't understand is that the queer female community does not have the buying power that queer men do. Because a lot of us are service industry, law enforcement, healthcare workers, and none of these things, unless you are a very specific person in those worlds, are generating a lot of money. And we are statistically undereducated, underemployed, underpaid, you know, just by virtue of being who we are and looking how we look. And just being a member of the, you know, the female gender, you know, there's a lot to overcome. So when bar owners look at this community as a possible cash cow, they start raising drink prices. They'll start raising a cover just to get in. That's going to limit their night. They're going to come to your show for a little while, drink one or two expensive drinks, and then they're going to go somewhere else. We've had to hop bars because of it, because every bar owner that sees them is under the impression that, that we can capture that lightning in a bottle on multiple nights a week or just throw some queer females at it and they'll be the same kind of money that queer men have. It's just not the case. It takes a lot of patience to let the show be successful. Do you perhaps think that people just don't know what drag kings are or if they exist anymore? Oh, that's certainly a thing. I think certainly uh, drag queens historically have gotten more of the attention. I do think there's a gender inequity there. I think there is a component to that. And I think there's just not really a great way to educate people about what a drag king is. And, it, and drag kings ultimately are not for everybody. Like it's this weird, kitschy, campy thing and it's not for everybody in the community. But yeah, is there a lack of education? Sure. But there's also the problem that these things happen in bars and the youngest people that really need us the most can't see us because bars, if they have video poker, they're going to become 21 and up instead of letting those 18, 19, 20-year-olds come in. And I can't be mad at that because that's how a lot of bars make a lot of money. But, you know, that's one thing that I miss. It hurts me. We interviewed a bar owner at the oldest gay bar in Mississippi, which is on the coast where we're from. Mm -hmm. And the young people just don't know and have not been educated on gay culture. Mm -hmm. I went to this gay bar when I was a freshman in college, 18, and people just came from everywhere. By the time I was a senior, we had apps on our phone that we can meet gay people or people like us. Going to the gay bar was not a thing anymore. Yeah. I mean, it had changed ownership like six times, and it just wasn't what it used to be. And I'd never even heard of a drag king um, until I went to a troop show that you guys hosted at Mags. That's, well, that's totally fair, because there is not a universal touchstone for the LGBTQ plus community in America. There's simply not one place to go to learn about these things. I mean, I think I might die of shock if there was a comprehensive Wikipedia article on you know, LGBTQ plus culture in America that included all the nuances that every little pocket of our community has. 
there's just not a good way to educate folks about that and to tell them what's out there, because you will find something that speaks to you. But lesbian bars, I think it's not just the inequity. I think women are instructed by society to settle down, to seek out commitment. I think there's a quick push from graduating from high school and now college to finding a partner and figuring out what your family is going to look like. And then we start settling down. We stop going out as much. A successful lesbian bar, I have found, typically puts itself out of business. And that transcends some heteronormative culture. Yes. I've always heard that cliche, you know, gay people are like birds. Men hatch and women nest. You know, gay men find various partners and explore a lot more that way. And, and lesbians, they typically find one person and they, they nest right away. None of us are exempt from the culture that we grew up in. I mean, we all got exposed to the same thing that we may not have loved who they told us we were going to love later on, but the patterns are well established. Like if Cinderella had run off with a princess instead of a prince, our lives would look very different. So now you, you guys perform in a much smaller bar once a month. We've got two bars that we do shows at um, once a month at each. So we have two shows a month, which frankly is much better for us because we can be a lot more focused on production value and choreography than rapid fire putting out shows every week because I didn't realize it at the time, but it was wearing our performers down. Do you think your troupe has evolved in the past 10, 11 years? Definitely. I think we have gone through different performance styles and different priorities. The troupe has aged, and it's aged well, I think. Um, it's a lot more theatrical, a little less jukebox drag than we used to be. Like it's, it happens at least once every other show. Somebody will pop out with something that's very new, very fresh, and not necessarily straight up in your face drag. They're gonna bring something more dramatic to it. I have so many drag queens who are personal friends. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people that I know do this because it's a performance and they love to perform, and mm -hmm. that's something I never even thought about. I just thought, they just wanna dress, you know, like girls, and mm -hmm. it's really not that at all. That's what I, that's no. the one thing I've learned. And when I went into a King show, that's I didn't even have to think about it. Like it was just such a beautiful performance. It was just mm -hmm. art. So it just really resonated Thank so you. much. I will let them know if they don't hear this. I will let them know that you said that. Thank you. I also went to a show where there were burlesque mm -hmm. intertwined, and there was a beautiful like political statement at the end. I mean, it was just so good. It was all so good. Yeah, it has been a rough year for uh, doing drag, at least from the hosting standpoint. You don't want to talk about politics too much, but you also don't want to ignore it because this is impacting all of us all the time. Maybe that's why it's so important in a place in the South, and like you said, this blue pocket in a red state, maybe it's so important for the shows to still go on. The show mm -hmm. must go on. Oh yeah, because if we leave the South to everybody who's been running the South, that's so dangerous for the kids that are gonna come up because what happens to them? Right. If they don't have anybody in the queer community for elders to meet, to come to introduce them to the culture right. and tell them it's gonna be okay. It's already hard enough for young people to find people yeah. in the community. I'm here for it because when they do hit high school years and they do learn about us, they will make contact. So they can hunt us down pretty easily on Facebook. And right. sometimes they do. Like one of my drag kings came to us not long after their 18th birthday, after they had graduated high school, and had apparently been coming to the show for a couple of years. Wasn't supposed to, because they were underage, but that's how they became a drag king with us, is because they had been coming to our shows and were totally hooked and knew they were queer as the day is long. 
and that person was with us for years and loved every minute of it. Do you think there's something special about the gay community here? Absolutely. I think the pageantry that New Orleans asks for of any of its citizens, I think the queer community here embraces that and makes us all the more flamboyant and all the more congenial. You know, I think we are more hospitable than your average queer community. I think New Orleans means a lot to people who grew up in more rural areas who could go there and feel welcome and safe, like you said. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that St. Anne's so much darker. Once you pass over St. Anne on the Bourbon, it's a lot darker. Mm -hmm. Even to this day, walking across that line, I feel so much better. I could just breathe easier. And there's not, and it's not because Bourbon Street's awkward or strange to me or I feel discriminated mm -hmm. against. I just feel almost like home in a way. Yes. And you know when you go in there that there's only X amount of static that you're going to encounter from other people. In a straight bar, I'm not saying that I've had a bunch of bad interactions at straight bars, but it only takes one or two. My wife is very fond of saying that for queer people, bars are like going to church. You know, church has been a way to get to know your neighbors and get to develop a community. We just happen to have alcohol at our churches. Do you think there are a lot of misconceptions about identity and maybe who you feel you are? Of course. I have misconceptions about who I am. I would love to look somebody in the eye and say, I know exactly who I am. And I take testosterone because I am a man and I have the wrong body. But the reality is it's much more complex than that. I don't know what I am. I think genderqueer is the closest I can come to that. Do you see your troop being around New Orleans for a while? Yes. It's designed that way. It's designed around new talent because our goal is not to keep people in this perpetual adolescence of hanging out in bars and that's the only way to be in the community. We want people to go find whatever it is that you want to do. Once, once you've fallen out of love with drag, once it's not fun anymore, or something becomes more important to you. Our aim, or at least my aim, is to become less of a priority for our older performers and let the younger ones who need this, who need to grow up some in our community and need a safe place to do it, let them come in, take the pressure off of our older kings who maybe don't have to perform as often because we get to keep them longer. You, you want people to leave and grow in a different way and that's really beautiful and selfless, really. Well, I think I get a lot of pleasure from watching people first come to us scared and sometimes alone, and I watch them go through their 20s and into their 30s and to the more introspective phase, and then realizing that drag doesn't quite fill them up the way it used to because they have this going on. That's awesome. I would want everybody to feel like that about the people around them. Like, you want them to get better. Our troop is built so that we will keep going. As long as bars will have us, we will keep going. Thanks again to Teddy Mars for sitting down with me, and Amanda McCoy and Davin Coburn for producing Out Here in America. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories like this. But in the meantime, subscribe to Out Here in America on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Leave us a review, and we'll see y'all soon on Out Here in America.